All right, Remnant, how are we doing? Excellent, excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad that you uh, went through the rain to get here tonight. And uh, if you're new to Remnant, I just hope you find this to be a safe place. And um, we're just a group of people that... Uh, for whatever reason, circumstances in our life, people that we knew, uh, they just drove us to learn more about Jesus and to learn more about God. And so we started coming. And as we began to read this Bible, we began to start to understand that this book was far more than, than just a, a book or, or a list of rules or, or even a, a great novel. We, we began to understand that this book was actually written by God to us and that there's power in those words. And by reading that book, we begin to see ourselves and we begin to understand there's a God. And so what started out as kind of an intellectual pursuit became a relational one. And we began to fall in love with this Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and this God literally coming to earth to rescue us. And it's just been an incredible journey. So every week we come back and we worship him and we, we try to understand more and we try to understand what he's doing in our world. And that's really what this series has been about. We've been looking at what is God doing in our world? What's going on around us? What, how can we make sense of all the things that we see? So we've been in like, I don't know, months of study here, looking at end times and trying to figure out this book that God wrote called Revelation. And there's one revelation, and the revelation is Jesus. And so God told us in this book what is to come. And we've been looking at what is now, what, what was, what is, and what is to come. And, you know, truthfully, last week it was really cool. We, we got to actually see the, through John's eyes the throne of God in heaven. We, we got to step back and look at, at this throne. It was incredible. And yet this week... We have to move from the worship of God to the wrath of God. That's a difficult step. This has been actually a hard week because I don't like teaching on the wrath of God because I don't want anybody to ever experience it. But it's there and it's real. And, and God put 15 chapters in Revelation to tell us what's going to happen and to show us his wrath. And so about, I don't know, several weeks ago, many weeks ago, I preached on sort of getting comfortable with the idea of God's wrath. That, that we underestimate God's wrath because we underestimate how holy he is and how offensive sin is to him. And so what happens is we tend to downplay what Jesus really did on the cross. You see, because Jesus took every ounce of God's wrath on the cross for us. And as we open these next chapters and we begin to understand the scope of that wrath, then and only then do we begin to really understand the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. And so as we go through this section, uh, the next 14 chapters or so, we're going to find ourselves looking at a part of God perhaps that we'd preferred not to even look at. And yet God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you as I really am. Because truthfully, you have deceived yourself. You've pictured me to some, be somebody I'm not. And as a result, you're not motivated to go save everybody. So I'm going to reveal to you who I really am, what's really going to happen. And through that process, my hope, God says, is that you will wake up and begin to start trying to grab people and get them to a place where they can learn about me. And that's what this book is about. 
We learned last week that there has been this scroll that has been handed down from the prophet Daniel. That all these different prophets, Ezekiel, Daniels, and others, they dealt with this scroll. And the scroll basically told of what was going to happen in the end times. In fact, when it was read, it made them physically sick. When they began to read what we're about to look at, they got physically sick. And, and what happened was God says, look, seal this up. Seal this up until the time of the end. And so what's going to happen is we're going to begin to now see that there's only one person that's worthy to open the seals. This scroll is essentially God's inheritance, God's plan, God's design to restore Jesus to the rightful role. That's what the scroll's about. And so because he paid the price on the cross, he's the Lamb of God and he's the one, the only one that's worthy to open the seals. And we looked at that last week. Now in Revelation 4 and 5, everything we studied was about worship. The throne of God. We heard them falling, holy, holy, holy. We, we learned about the elders who are on the throne and they're worshiping God. And we learned about this incredible throne with this sort of 3D image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And how John had such a hard time describing it. Well, now we're going to move into another area that John's going to have a hard time finding the words for, and it's the wrath of God. Several weeks ago, again, I taught about this, about getting comfortable with this. So now John is being transported back to earth for the breaking of the seven seals on the scroll. No more throne in heaven, no more angels flying around the throne, no more 24 elders casting their crowns down before the throne, no more heavenly choirs singing praises to the Creator and the Redeemer. This is the beginning of the seven seals, the beginning of Christ's ascent to the throne as King. The scroll contains the inheritance of the kingdom of the world. And in order for that inheritance and for Jesus to be fully enthroned, this scroll has to be opened and the things in the scroll have to occur. It is the destiny of mankind. And only the Lamb had the right to loosen the seals on the scroll and bring this part of history forward. Now I want to say another thing before we get too far into this. It's easy in the world of blockbuster movies and all the apocalypse movies and video games and all that sort of stuff to sort of get in your mind that this is somehow a fictional story. Okay? These are real events that are going to happen in a real place in Sarasota and people who are living when that time happens will experience them in a very real way. There is nothing good about any of this. It's the last place you ever want to be. As Christ opens each seal, a new judgment is poured out. Dictators, war, famine, death, persecution. We've had that all through history. We've seen some horrible things, the Holocaust and other things, famines and people dying of, of just not having food and water. But they're nothing compared to what's coming, God says. As far as the seals are concerned, there's going to be an intense amplification of the conditions that we've seen through history. 
what do you mean? God, God's going to judge the world. Think about that for a minute. God is a righteous judge. Those who have rejected his son, he has to judge the world. Now, a lot of people think that a judge has to actively do something to judge the world. But sometimes what happens is a judge just doesn't do anything. They stand back and let people do what they're doing, which brings it to an end or a consequence. In other words, not every judgment is doing something. Sometimes a judgment is not stopping something. And that's what we're having here. What God's going to do by judging the world is he's going to let the world have its own way. That's what he's going to do. The world's going to get what it wants. You want to worship yourself? Go worship yourself. You want the end result of all the things you're doing? Go for it. I'm not going to stop you, God says. But those things have consequences. And what's ironic is the world's going to get exactly what it wants. No God, worship yourself. But, what it, but it will not want what it eventually gets. Although some view the seven seals and trumpets and bowls as things that happen all together in the end times and in the time of tribulation, I think the best interpretation is they, they actually happen in sequence and in order. And that's going to be important for us to understand that the seven seals lead to the seven trumpets, which lead to the seven bowls. Okay, and we're going to go through that as we go through Revelation. It's important to realize that Jesus talked about these seals, and we're going to go into that tonight. But the seven seals, the first part of this judgment, involves the first half of the tribulation. Okay? And we'll talk about that in a minute. Let me remind you sort of of where we are. Why don't you put up that slide? Okay, so we're going to see these seven seals that are going to, eventually the seventh seal actually, actually opens up seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet actually opens up seven bowls of wrath. And in between these, there's an interlude in heaven, almost like a, oh my, get ready. It's about to intensify. Each one gets worse, okay? And as they move from the trumpets, or from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, as soon as the seals are done, Jesus says, we're moving into what's called the great tribulation, as if those weren't bad enough. Now, I want you to understand as you're reading Revelation, and this is printed in your um, bulletin, that we're in the church age. The next event to happen is the rapture. We've talked about that. While the raptures, once we're raptured, we'll be up in heaven at the judgment seat and the marriage of the Lamb. And while we're doing all those incredibly wonderful, great things with Jesus, the world is going to be going through hell. And the tribulation is going to occur. And we're going to be studying what happens on earth during the tribulation. God wants us to know. Why does He want us to know if we're not going to be here? He wants us to know so it'll scare the snot out of us, so we'll go tell our friends to come with us to heaven. That's why He wants us to know. Now, the next thing is um, I want you to see in Revelation in each chapter where these things occurred. I think this is in your bulletin as well. But we're in chapter 6. We're going to look at the seals. Then there's going to be a kind of an interlude, and in chapter 7 there's kind of a discussion about some other stuff, and then we pick it up again, and uh, chapter 8 and 9 are the trumpets, and then we're going to have another interlude where they tell us all sorts of things, and then we're going to pick up the bowls towards the end, and that will lead us into the return of Jesus, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom. So that's kind of where we're at. 
Now, I've said before that the book of Revelation is best understood by knowing what's in the previous 65 books. And that all these themes are being brought together at the end. And so we've spent a lot of time going backwards to understand what's in front of us. So I want to take you back a moment to Peter's life. Remember Peter, my favorite, the one that walked on water, the one that was, he would, you know, Peter just, he was just incredible. But, but Peter gets to the end of his life. And he's writing the last letter he'll write, which is Second um, Peter. And he says to them, essentially, here's what I want you to know. I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to be crucified, Peter would tell them. And I want certain things I want you to remember because I'm not going to be here. Peter is in prison. He's been tried and convicted. He's writing his last letter before his execution that he knows for sure is on the horizon. And he knows his execution is absolutely certain. And he knows the way he will be executed. How does he know that? Jesus told him. John chapter 21. He said to him, Peter, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it the third time. Remember we talked last week about what three times means. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter knows exactly what's about to happen to him. He's been waiting his whole life for it. And he's writing a final plea to the believers before that moment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. That means to the brothers in Christ. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter says, look, think back from creation. From the moment of creation until Noah, everyone said God would never destroy the earth. He created it. He loves everyone. He wouldn't do that. And Peter says, don't be fooled. God's actually done this before. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, look, I know I'm departing soon. And I know that the Lord has not returned yet. But just as he stored up water for the flood, he's storing up fire for the judgment. If it seems like a long time to us, it's not a long time to him. He says, don't look over this one fact. 
that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. Why does it seem to be taking him so long? Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says, look, there's a day coming when this all ends. There's a day coming, the day of the Lord, and it is as certain to come as the day in Noah's time. People are going to scoff about it. People are going to say it's not going to happen. People are going to forget about it. But the great and deadful day of the Lord that all the prophets referred to will come on some day. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Given that certainty, Peter says, how should we be living in the meantime? That's the rest of the book of 2 Peter. But he is clear, this earth we live on, it one day is coming to an end. In fact, after we read all this in Revelation 21, we understand that the earth as we know it will not exist. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So Peter says, look, the end's coming like a thief. The earth as we know it is going to become a burned up piece of space junk. It's going to happen. How will it happen? We're going to read about it in Revelation. That's what's going to be revealed to us. So as we open the seals, the end begins. Remember I told you that the story of God, the curtain opens in Genesis, it closes in Revelation. Remember that we've learned what was and what is, and now we're learning what will be. I want to remind you that I believe as the seals are open, we, the church, have already been raptured. That we will be in heaven with Jesus. The rapture is the next prophetic event to occur. It is imminent. There is nothing that has to happen before the rapture happens. We are closer today than we've been any other day in the history of man. In Matthew, Jesus referred to the events of Revelation 6. Let me walk you through and remind you of this. Jesus speaking. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let, not, not let the one who's in the field turn back to take his cloak. For alas, the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in the days, pray that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus said, look, there's a, or, uh, yeah, he said, look, there's a time coming when the events are going to be so horrible, it's going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen to date or ever will see again in the future. It's going to be worse than the Holocaust. It's going to be worse than the nuclear explosions in Japan. It's going to be worse than every pandemic, epidemic, all combined together. It's going to be worse than any earthquake, any tsunami, any hurricane, any fires, whatever you want to think about that you've seen and experienced on earth. What is coming, Jesus said, is much, much worse. The great tribulation that Jesus talks about is not only the worst thing that we have ever seen, nothing like it's ever going to happen again. That's our introduction to Revelation chapter 6. What will be? Verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow... And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This white horse. This white horse is going to bring to the world an imposed peace. We've read about this time of peace before. Back in Daniel. So let me take you back to Daniel, and then we'll catch up to where we are now. Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 weeks. Okay, in prophecy, that's 70 sets of seven years. Okay, so it's like he's saying, 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city. So this is about the Jews and Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, okay, in other words, to deal with sin, to put an end to sin, to atone for sin, and to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both the vision and the prophet and anoint a most holy place. Okay, so what he's saying is, before all this is restored and the end is done and Jesus is where he should be and all the sins have been accounted for and all the people that rejected him have been taken care of, before this entire thing is tied up with a bow, he says, 400 or 70 weeks of seven. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So what we see here is we have 69 weeks. 69 sets of seven. 483 years. From the moment the, the edict is given by the king to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem until the Messiah will show up at that temple. Okay? So, when did the king give the order to rebuild the temple? Because if we know that, we should expect the Messiah to arrive in the temple 483 years later to the day. Well, it turns out the decree was given in Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Asterixes, when wine was before him, I took up wine and gave it to the king. The king notices that Nehemiah is sad, and Nehemiah asks permission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and rebuild the walls. They have been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews have been exiled to Babylon. Their homeland is in desolate waste. And Nehemiah asks the king, can I go back? 
And the king said to me, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And he goes on and he asks for a letter, an edict from the king. The 20th year of King Asterixes' rule during the month of Nisan is Passover 445 B.C. Okay? From 445 B.C. at Passover, God told Daniel what the Messiah would arrive at the temple in exactly 483 years. 483 years to the day at Passover, Jesus arrives to Jerusalem as the Messiah and fulfills this prophecy. Did you ever wonder why they were waiting with palm branches on the way into Jerusalem looking for somebody riding on a donkey? Because the prophets had said not only would it happen, it's today. And so they're lined up looking for the Messiah. And sure enough, here comes Jesus on the day the prophets hundreds of years ago said it would happen. And when you correct for the Jewish calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and you do all that sort of stuff, which I'm not going to go into, it's 32 AD. Jesus walks up the path to Jerusalem as the Lamb of God being presented for Passover, on Passover, for the people of the world, just as Daniel said it would happen. 69 weeks those are gone. 69 weeks have been done. But remember, Daniel said 70 weeks. Huh. Well, a lot of people thought, okay, then Jesus is going to come back in seven years. If we're at 69 when he presents himself and gets crucified, then another seven years will go by and Jesus will come back. And so they fully expected him to return seven years to the date of Passover after his crucifixion, and he didn't. So at 39 AD, they're all walking around looking for the return of Jesus. In fact, a lot of the early church folks had stopped working and started looking to the sky ready to fly. And they were hoping that he was coming back, but he didn't. Because they missed this. And after 262 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and I'll have nothing. That's what happens. Jesus gets presented to the temple. He's crucified as the Lamb of God. He's sacrificed and he's buried. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay? The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by Roman Emperor Titus in AD 70, just as Jesus said it would be. And he says, and to the end there shall be war. Desecrations are decreed. From AD 70 until today, humanity has been in constant conflict. There has never been a moment in world history where there are not wars. Sometimes global, sometimes regional, but we've always been at war somewhere. In 2,000 years since Jesus left, we've never seen global world peace. Daniel 9.27. And he shall make a strong covenant. He is this person who's to come that's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. He'll make a strong covenant with many for one week. Wait a minute, this is our 70th week. This is the week that we've been waiting for. What he's saying is, there's going to be wars, people are always going to be fighting, but then there's going to be someone who comes and he establishes peace, global, worldwide peace that we've never seen before. And when you see that, start counting seven years again. Okay? So that's what Daniel's telling us. He, some person, will make a strong covenant in the final week, one final seven-year period. 
Sometime between the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of the Messiah, a leader is going to arise who will make a covenant with Israel for the final seven year period. God tells us through Daniel that that seven year covenant of peace will not last. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What he's saying is, look, some person's going to come. Daniel says he'll come, he'll bring this whole era of war to an end. He will enable peace through a treaty with Israel. And once that treaty happens, the seven-year clock starts ticking. Okay? He will once again allow sacrifice and offerings and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Peace will be an imposed peace on the world. And three and a half years into this last week... The covenant of peace with Israel will be broken by this person who will end sacrifice, he'll end offering, he'll desecrate the temple by establishing himself as God, and then the next three and a half years will be the decreed end when all of this wrath is poured out on the desolator, the Antichrist. So we've been looking in the church age for a period of peace, right? Because once we see a period of peace, we can start counting seven years. Jesus will come back seven years from that moment. Okay? Revelation 6, 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four creatures with a voice say, like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And on this horse the rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. He will come to conquer. Notice that he has a bow, but no arrow. He's given a crown by the people. He didn't steal it. He didn't win it. It's given to him. He came out to conquer and to bring about conquest. And that conquest is domination of the entire world through imposed world peace. The bow with the arrow suggests that while he is ready for war, he does not have to use war to take on this power. He will come peacefully. He will be ascend to the throne peacefully as the rider on the white horse is released in the first seal judgment. He comes out conquering and to conquer because he wants to dominate the world. As he comes out, false Christs will come. False people who claim to be the Messiah mimicking Jesus. The white horse represents the Antichrist coming to earth to take over. He will make his entrance on scene. Along with him will be a wave of false messiahs that will appear after the rapture. The sudden disappearance of all true believers will open the floodgates for an outbreak of deception and counterfeit Christ who will have supposedly the answer for the world's problems. Eventually, one man will stand out head and shoulders above the rest. He'll be the fulfillment of the rider on the white horse, the ultimate anti-Messiah. We know him as the Antichrist. So when the first seal is open, we see the Antichrist begin to take dominance in the world. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. 
And its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So this second writer is going to take the peace that was given to the world. Remember what Jesus said? He said, my peace I leave with you. It was a gift, right? Well, now it's going to be taken from the earth. We just read in Daniel 9 that halfway through the last seven years that the peace treaty with Israel will be broken. So at this point, three and a half years after peace was established, the red horse is now permitted to be unleashed at the second seal and take that peace from the earth. In Matthew 24, Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. Paul refers to it in 2 Thessalonians. It'll be when the leader goes to the temple and declares himself as God. That's part of the second horse. The fiery red horse is the horse of war. Peace ends and war breaks out across the globe. Jesus says there'll be wars and rumors of wars. The rider on the red horse is the one that brings those wars. These wars are going to be international. They're going to be civil upheaval. The promised peace of the white horse is going to be shattered when the second horse of the apocalypse is released. Then he opened the third seal, and I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not harm the oil and the wine. In other words, a thousand dollars for a loaf of bread. The black horse follows war and it brings famine. Oceani's picture uh, hangs in the um, New York Museum of Fine Art. Uh, painted in 1910, it depicts the four horses of the apocalypse. And if you can figure that out, very good. It's supposed to be the image of the four horses of the apocalypse attacking a modern city of 1910. He painted the black horse as a tornado spinning widely, wildly above the other horsemen. The war of the red horse is going to bring war, and after that comes famine. A denarii uh, will buy either some wheat or some barley. It's about a day's wages or more. A measure is about a quart. It's about the basic food for one day for one person. What he's saying is food prices are going to skyrocket so high. They're going to be like a thousand percent higher than they should have been. People are going to resort to lower quality food to find something to feed their families. Wheat used to be the main food for people in Israel. Barley was for the, four, the poor people, usually often used to feed animals. So what he's saying is during this future famine, we're going to quit buying normal foods. We're going to quit buying the, the yeah, normal foods, and we're going to buy cheaper food. In other words, you know, you can either feed yourself maybe some potatoes and, and a little bit of chicken, or you can feed your whole family macaroni and cheese. That's where this is going to go, only worse. Do not harm the oil and the wine. 
What he's saying is, even though the world's going to be at famine, there are going to be people who can afford nicer things. There'll still be the oil and the wine. It won't be harmed. So those with resources and money will be able to buy things, even though other people are starving to death. Then he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The pale horse, the fourth horse of the apocalypse, is death. The word used to describe the horse's color is ashen or pale. The Greek word chloros is the source for our English word chlorine. It denotes, denotes that pale green color that we see when people die. It's the decay and the pallor of death. It's the ashen color that blanches a face of someone who's died. In a terrifying scene, John sees the grim reaper and the gravedigger moving together across the face of the earth. Hades is the New Testament rendition of Sheol, or a place for the dead. So what he's saying is, look, the... Um, Death slays the body. Hades comes around behind and picks up the death. These two symbols represent the massive number of people who will die during this time of the horsemen, during the first part of the tribulation. One quarter of the world's population will die. We've seen in our world hundreds of millions killed by dictators and war and famine, yet all that is going to pale in comparison to what comes in the wake of this ultimate dictator who turns the world on, him, on its end. Jesus said, no, there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen from the beginning of the world. Power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill. Now notice this, power was given to the horsemen and given by God. This is God's judgment on the world. Even though all hell is breaking loose, it is still controlled and still under the direction of God himself. He has set limits on what can happen and what can't happen because his judgment is just. So we will see throughout Revelation, even though he's allowing crazy stuff to happen, he puts boundaries on what can and can't happen. Only a fourth of the world can be impacted with death from the apocalypse or the four horses of the apocalypse. Now notice that the fourth horse is going to bring four ways of bringing death to the world. War, famine, disease, and the wild beasts of the earth. Now, some people think that means that the animals are going to go crazy, that the food chain is going to get disrupted, and lions are going to roam the street eating people. That's probably not what this means. In Revelation, the, world for wild, the word for wild beast is therion. It's a Greek word. It's used 38 times. Every time that word is used in Revelation, except this one, it is referred to and translated as either the Antichrist or those acting on behalf of the Antichrist or hostile world leaders. 
Many believe that the wild beasts of the earth that destroy people in Revelation 6 are actually military and political leaders who overpower, oppress, and persecute their subjects because they can now take advantage of a world that's become chaotic. And I think that's far more likely than a bunch of lions decide to suddenly eat people. The four horses of the apocalypse, they've lined up and they're being moved out one by one as the seals are open at their allotted times. I want to make sure that we see the parallels of these four horsemen and what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24. So let me read this to you. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And they said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus says, look, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. That's the white horse. Remember the white horse unleashes many false Christs until the real Antichrist rises up. So Jesus is saying, look, here's as tribulation starts, one of the first things you're going to see is people coming in my name and saying, I am the Christ. And they're going to lead many people astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be death. And what Jesus is saying is, this is the red horse. We're going to see the white horse, then we're going to see horses. We're going to see things happen. This is the red horse that's going to happen. Nation will rise against nation. There'll be famines. Famines, that's the third horse. And then he says there's going to be earthquakes in various places. We're going to learn in a minute that's the sixth seal. So as Jesus is telling him what's going to happen, as he's telling him what's going to happen before the great tribulation, he's describing the tribulation. And he's telling him, these are the things you're going to see. You're going to see people claim to be Christ. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars and things are going to start happening. And you're going to see that happen. And then you're going to see famine and death. Those are the four horses. And then there's going to be an earthquake. And we're going to talk about that when the sixth seal is open. So as he's describing the events on earth that the disciples will see, he's walking through the seals as they're being opened in heaven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Remember that in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we saw the church what was and what is. Seven letters to very seven real churches. But between chapters 4 and 19, there's not a single mention of the church on earth. So where's the church going to be during these end times, during the four horses of the apocalypse and the seals? Well, Paul answered that for us in Thessalonians. This is a church that was being slaughtered and persecuted, and they wanted to know what happened to those who have died. Paul had said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Most of the people that they knew, most of the saints over the last 2,000 years are now absent from the body. I mean, think about that. The number of Christians on the earth right now who are alive is a very small number of the total Christians who've lived over the last 2,000 years. So where's the church? 
Well, their spirit is with Jesus. When we die, we are instantly with Jesus. Our spirit goes to be with Jesus. Our body stays here. We don't need it anymore. So they're wondering, if Christ came back today, what happens to those who are already with him? And what happens to those of us who are alive the day he comes back? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Those are Christians who've died. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Those who have died will come with Jesus. For we will declare to you by a word from the Lord. In other words, this isn't Paul saying, hey, this is my idea. This is my thought. This is what I think is going to happen. He's saying, no, no, this is straight from God's lips. This is exactly what's going to happen. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. The Lord from, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's describing the rapture of the church. And what he's saying is all who died, their spirit is in heaven with Jesus. And at the rapture, they're coming back with him and we're all going to meet together in the clouds. And remember, that occurs before the fourth chapter of Revelation, before the Antichrist brings world peace. And for that reason, there's no mention of the church on earth during the seven years of tribulation. We are conspicuously and obviously absent. I talked about this in a previous sermon. We are in the process of going through a judgment and a marriage to the Lamb, and we will return with Jesus uh, when we are raptured. No mention of the church at all, chapter 4 through 19, but yet here we are and we find some people, the souls of some people. These souls of some people, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who've been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they've borne. Who are these people? The, the church has already been raptured. The church has already received its glory. The church has already been restored. These are believers who are slain for the word after the rapture. When Christians disappear from the planet, there are going to be people who immediately fall on their face and say, oh my God, they were right. And they're going to become what's called tribulation saints, people who become believers during the time of tribulation. And the Bible says the overwhelming majority of them will be slaughtered for that decision. Okay? When they are slaughtered for that decision, their soul goes up to be with Jesus. Right? And at the fifth seal, what we're seeing are the souls of all these people that have been martyred and killed during the tribulation. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Think about that. There's a designated number of people who must die as tribulation martyrs. God has already decided who they are and how many there are. And what he's telling these people is, no, there are still more people who have to be killed during the tribulation. 
When everyone who I've determined must be martyred during the tribulation for their faith has done so, then I will avenge what happened to you. Now you may be wondering, as I was, these seals are divine judgments on people who have rejected Jesus. So how does allowing those who've accepted Jesus in the tribulation to be martyred meet with God's justice? Looks like they're being judged and killed. Well, the death of God's people brings judgment in two ways. First, the removal of God's people, whether through the rapture or through death, takes the salt, the light, and the power of the Holy Spirit out of the world. And it allows darkness and corruption to overrun the earth unchecked. It'll be a case of the blind leading the blind. Second, as the enemies of God murder His people, they are unknowingly heaping more judgment on themselves. And God will answer these martyrs' prayers for vindication when He pours out His wrath on His enemies. In addition, these martyred people who die for their faith will inspire other people to die for what they believe in and not submit to the Antichrist. So these people, much like us, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, He can do whatever He wants with our lives as long as it, you know, He's going to advance the kingdom through us. When He opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. The sixth seal, when it opens, there is a massive earthquake on earth. As if the entire earth is just rocking at its core. It will be catastrophic. A huge earthquake. Black dust will rise up and it will seem like the sun is not there, like the sky is not there. Dust and ash will block out the atmospheres. Stars will seem to fall from the sky. Every mountain and every island is going to be disrupted and removed from their place because this earthquake is so catastrophic. It's going to occur both under the sea and on the land. And it's going to cause the people who are on earth who may have thought the wars were kind of normal and who may have thought death and plague and, and those things were sort of okay, all of a sudden they're going to go, oh my God, this earth is exploding from within. This is not a normal thing. There's going to be sheer panic on earth among the people. In the Bible, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all describe changes in the skies that show and precede his return or his original entry into the earth. So it's not unusual that as the world gets ready to receive Jesus that we're going to see changes in the stars, changes in the skies. We're going to see things we can't explain and haven't seen before. Joel described it this way, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible, who can endure it? Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? This is going to be so powerful and so big that even the leaders of the world are going to know that it came from God. And that this is a manifestation of his wrath. And they are in serious, serious trouble. It's amazing. They reject the rock of ages, but they pray to the rocks. You think they'd be praying to God, but instead they're praying to the forces of nature. Instead of fleeing to God for mercy and refuge and humbly bowing down for him in worship, they conceal themselves in caves and are consumed with frenzied fear. You see, what sinners dread most is not death. What they dread most is the revealed presence of Almighty, Holy God in their life. You want to be scared? Reject Jesus and stand in front of God. That's what they're experiencing. And they're running to the caves because they think they can hide from God. Now, in light of all these desolations that occur, the sealed judgments, you might conclude that no one could possibly stand through this. Revelation 7, however, is going to show us that there's two groups that, that do. One group will stand strong on earth under God's protection, while the other group after suffering martyrdom over their faith, will stand before God's throne in heaven. You see, the believer can stand in the face of the wrath of God because Jesus has already taken it for him. Jesus answered the how question. For there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short... No human being would have been saved. Those that believe in Jesus who are tribulation saints, those who don't, no one would survive this. The wrath is too great. But for the sake of the elect, those on earth who have surrendered to Jesus, those days will be cut short. Again, God limiting what happens on earth in his sovereignty and wisdom. The kings of the earth figure this out. No one can save us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And God says, nobody's going to survive this unless I cut it short. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Imagine this moment. The world has been rocked by the biggest earthquake it's ever seen. It's spinning weirdly on its axis. People are literally mountains, tsunami, everything's happening at once. And then calm. No wind, nothing. The earth is still. That's got to be freaky. And next week we're going to learn what happens after the earth goes still. There is a pause that occurs in heaven. And as that pause occurs, what happens on earth stops. And we're going to see this in Revelation several times, where after some catastrophic events, all of a sudden there's just, and it's going to freak people out. So what do we do with all this? 
We can read it. We can study it. We can know what the seven seals are. We can talk about the four horses of the apocalypse. We can do all those kind of things. But Jesus didn't tell us that so we'd have some cool story to tell. He didn't put this in Revelation. He didn't reveal to us what's happening both in heaven and on earth so we could go, boy, I am just really glad I'm not here. There's a reason he's revealing his wrath and revealing what's going to happen in the future to his believers. Because we are here until the moment that he decides to rapture us or take us home through death. Either way, we are supposed to take this information and freak out for the people that we love. And freak out for the people who don't know. And I talked at the beginning about how we are not going to be able to reach everyone. But if you start praying for opportunities, I guarantee you God is going to put somebody in your path who needs to know this story. Because people are looking for answers. And we've talked about this before. People are spiritually hungry right now. They know this world's spinning to the end. They know. It's obvious. I mean, just look at what's happening. The, the world is in chaos right now. And every day it just gets worse and worse. So our job with this is not to go home tonight and go, that is going to be crazy. So glad I'm getting raptured. We should go home tonight and make a list of people that we're going to commit to praying for. Because the Word says that the Holy Spirit is the one that draws people to Christ. And that the prayers of the saints move that forward. And we need to commit to the people that we love and we know for an opportunity by the Holy Spirit to share with them what we're learning. We need to have a burden for people around us because this is not some fictitious Hollywood story. This is the real deal. And it's going to happen in Sarasota. It's going to happen in your hometown. It's worldwide. That's why he's revealing it to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, we have limited minds. Because truthfully, God, I think if we saw all this, like John, we would be struggling trying to describe it, trying to wrap our minds around it, trying to understand. God, every one of us right now, I know you're putting on our heart people that we know. I know it. And maybe we've given up on them. Maybe we thought it was impossible. Maybe we thought there's no way they'd ever come to Christ. God, I was one of those people. My sister said I was the last person on earth she thought would ever accept Jesus. She prayed anyway. So God, would you move our hearts and burden us for people that don't know you? Would you help us to begin conversations? Maybe open doors where we can share with people what's happening. God, would you burden us for those who are going to go through this? Please don't leave us secure in our faith with you. That's not why you did this. That's not why you gave us a revelation. I mean, God, if you just wanted us to go home with you, all you would do is just leave this book out. But you have us here because you have work for us to do. And God, since the day Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. People have told people who have told people who have told people who have told people who have told you. At any point, if that chain had been broken, it scares me to think where we would be. 
So God, I know there are people in my past, historically over the years, who were courageous enough to share the story of Jesus until it finally got to my grandfather. God, don't let me break the chain. So God, there are people that you put in our lives who need to hear the truth from us. Would you just burden us, make us miserable until we go share this information in a loving and caring way. They can reject it, God, but we can't fail to give it to them. Help us use what we're going to read in the next few weeks as we see what's going to happen on earth as motivation to move the gospel forward and to tell people why we have the hope that we have. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week we begin, we go into chapter 7. We're going to learn about 144,000 people. We're going to learn about some other things. We're going to find out what the seventh seal is. But between now and then, I really want you to think about praying for those who maybe God's going to put in your path. And maybe somebody you don't even know yet. But I promise you, he is looking to and fro for people whose hearts are truly his. And it aligns with his will that the gospel message is shared. So when you raise your hand and say, God, I'm ready, stand back. Because it's going to happen. Okay? A couple quick announcements. Happy buckets in the back. Um, Please continue to contribute to what we're doing here. We are... um, in the process of trying to decide for the next fiscal year about our giving to missionaries and others and those kind of things. So uh, if God's moving your heart, please help us. Um, next thing is last night we had a youth event. Um, we had an incredible time. As you know, Chris and Bethany have stepped down as our youth directors and we're in the process of a transition that's going to be broader than simply youth. We're actually looking at how do we help people stay in the church and stay close to God well into young adulthood. So that when they graduate from high school, they don't just disappear on us. So we're rearranging and doing some things. Last night we had an event. um, I think we had over 60 total people. um, And uh, we had a great time. If your heart is moved towards wanting to serve in young adult ministry or youth ministry or children's ministry, whatever, uh, we need help. It's just that simple. And uh, in addition, there's a sign-up sheet out front for help in the toddler area and in the other areas here during the service. And I've said if everybody could just do one week, uh, we would only have to do it about once a year. Um, And I'll tell you, I spent time with our toddlers about two weeks ago. I don't want to be in here. Those kids have got it going on, and they're a blast. So, um, you know, just pick a week, sign up, volunteer. If you haven't had a background check, we'll do one. It doesn't take very long. And we get this covered, and then all of us can pick one week where we watch online, okay? Uh, Because the next generation is critical. And and I mentioned it in the sermon. I'm not going to preach another one. But if we let this message die with us, and we don't get it to these kids, and we don't get it to the high schoolers and the middle schoolers and the young adults, then we're going to be accountable for that. And I would encourage you to go back and reread the seven letters to the seven churches if you want to know what Jesus is going to think about people who held on to the gospel and didn't invest in the next generation. Okay, we don't want to be that church. All right? Why don't you stand up for me? We're going to have food in the back, so I encourage you to go back there and hang out. Um, This week... I really want you to begin actively praying for those who don't know Christ. 
actively processing and asking God to bring to your mind people you may not have thought about for years. We live in the world where we can actually send a Facebook message and connect with people and just see what God does with it, okay? So I encourage you to do that, all right? We're going to go through the wrath of God. I want you to remember to focus on His holiness. So as we go this week, just focus on those that don't know Christ. Pray for opportunities. And then do what they did in Acts. When the Acts church asked for prayer, what they prayed for was boldness. They said, God, give us boldness. They didn't say, give us money. They didn't say, keep the persecution from us. They didn't say, protect us. They said, give us boldness to share the message with the world. Okay, we love you. We'll see you back next week. Thanks. 